Welcome to episode number 33 of the Marine Lair podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we're joined by Larry Stone of the Seattle Times, longtime columnist. We talk about this Mariners baseball team, a little bit about his book with Edgar Martinez, and a little bit on his career as well. Really insightful conversation that you're going to want to hang around for. We have our three Mariners storylines. We'll go down on the farm and pick out a standout Mariners minor leaguer. We missed some big storylines with our MLB wraparound over the last couple of weeks, so we'll get back to that and take a look around baseball with some of the biggest storylines. We have another Russell Wilson umpire of the week, and we'll close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Just a reminder before the show gets started, we've partnered with In The Clutch Clothing Company. In The Clutch Clothing is an official partner of the Marine Layer Podcast. In The Clutch is the ultimate fan site for Seattle baseball merchandise including the Celebration Trident, official MLBPA shirts for J-Rod, Jared Kelnick, Cal Raleigh, and Los Bomberos. You can see TJ wearing his Los Bomberos shirt for this show if you're watching on YouTube, which you should be. And if you if that shirt looks cool to you and you're interested in getting one of your own or any of the other player shirts, you can go to intheclutch.com and use the code MarineLayerPod for 10% off. And currently, every shirt on their website ships within the U.S. for free. And this is a reminder, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to check us out on Apple and Spotify. Give a, give us a five-star review, follow us, make sure to download our episodes just so you know whenever we post, you're ready to listen to it. Same thing if you're on Apple or Spotify. Go check us out on YouTube, go subscribe, go turn on the notification bell. You won't miss any of our content. And if you want to catch us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, and on TikTok at Marine Layer Pod. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you to this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast, recording here on Monday, June 12th. And well, I th- last weekend was about as low as it possibly could get, so we set the bar extremely low, Lyle. And it seemed like this weekend it did manage to actually exceed that bar. So congratulations to the boys. Yay. It got so much better this week, didn't it? It did. It, it actually did, compared to last weekend, which... I infamously dubbed the high point of the season at the beginning of last week's episode. I mean, this week it, it kind of exceeded it a little bit. By that standard, yeah, but we're we're getting to the emotional roller coaster part of the season where they're they're just tearing me to shreds. Like 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 we talked about at the start of the season. We said that look, we're fans of this podcast. We're gonna break stuff down down the middle and and with real facts and knowledge behind a lot of the points we're making during the show. That doesn't mean that when we're sitting there watching games during the week that we're not sitting there getting frustrated because I am. We're like everybody else. We're kind of sitting here thinking, why in the world are we here in mid-June and they have not figured it out yet? Because it was another week where they kind of underperformed. But yes, it was better than last weekend in Texas. And it's a lot worse because it's the Angels. At least Phil Nevin got tossed. At least we got the luxury of that. He is truly the worst. Phil Nevin is truly the worst. Just between yeah. base, between basically inciting a bounty last year on Mariners hitters, including Julio, and then that ejection this past weekend. Yeah, he's he's just so easy to roll your eyes at. I don't even know if Angels fans like that guy. Is he even a good manager? No. Yeah, I, no well, I know he hasn't convinced Shohei to stay. There's been no... You, what A good manager might actually 
talk to Shohei and Shohei might realize, yeah, you know what? I kind of like this organization. Doesn't seem like he's quite that way. Well, he stood up for him this past weekend when he got tossed. I'll tell you what, that was the most angry I've ever seen Shohei Otani after a called strike three. And, and, and it wasn't really all that outward. And Shohei just doesn't really get angry in general. But you could tell he was not happy about that strike three call, which to his credit, it probably was a ball. But he dropped he dropped an F bomb, I believe. Right. He did. And and <laughs> and that's what I'm talking about. So he didn't say it to the umpire, but he got caught on camera as he was walking back to the dugout dropping an F bomb. And I was like, oh, that came from Shohei. Like he doesn't say stuff like that. At least you don't see him say stuff like that. Yeah, so that was a little out of character for him, but I think he had a right to be frustrated. I think the next step for him is to go right out of the Ichiro tree of disrespecting umpires and not say a word to the umpire. Instead, take your bat and you draw a line in the sand where you thought the pitch was and then get tossed out of the game. I said sand, it's dirt, but same stuff. Yeah, that's like a no-no in baseball, isn't it? You Any player you see do that, gets ejected immediately. It happened to Julio last year. He drew that line in the dirt and he got kicked out of the game. If he did it, I think the umpire would have made our Russell Wilson umpire of the week. It was not him that made it this week. But if Shohei did do that and he got tossed, I think I think they'll make a pretty good case. Oh yeah. If any umpire ever throws Otani out, they're basically automatically getting the award. Because as we talk about People are there to see the stars. I think we would call Shohei Otani a star, if not a transcendent player in the game of baseball. And if somebody pays a ticket to go to a game and watch him, only to get tossed after half the game, oh, people are going to be pissed. And hey, I know Phil Nevin's going to go stand up for his current guy. We're also going to go stand up for a potential future Mariner. We're making our pitch to Shohei Otani here on the Marine Layer podcast so he knows we have his back if he comes. Yeah, Shohei, if you're out there listening, which I have no doubt in my mind at some point you will be, of course, <laughs> we have your back. In fact, you can come on this show anytime you want. That's an open invitation. Open invitation. You don't even have to sign with the Mariners. We'll take you. But, you know, if you get ejected, we're standing up for you. We have your back. Like We will, we will go tooth and nail to fight the Major League Baseball Umpires Union for you and only for you. And if you want to get some thoughts out about an ejection again, hop right on with us and talk about it. This this is a safe haven, of course. Yeah, this is. This is a nice, this is a bubble environment. No judgment. Uh, you know, maybe a few people might listen, but you know, everyone <laughs> else is is in the trust tree. So don't worry about it, Chohei. We got you. Uh, we got you covered. Wow. Okay. Let's uh, let's stop dodging around the uh, let's stop dodging around the tough subjects. Now we're going to talk some t- talk some tough subjects. Let's get to our three Mariners storylines. Okay, up first, Lyle. Is there concern with the Mariners starting pitching regressing? I think there has to be concern. Maybe they weren't going to keep up the pace they were at where they were the top rotation in baseball. It was certainly possible. I mean, we know on paper this rotation's good. Even if they weren't going to be the top group in the sport, there was no reason to expect they would just drastically fall off. In the last couple of weeks, there's been a little bit of a drastic fall off. I mean, you look at four of the five starters past Castillo, and it just hasn't looked pretty. I mean, Bryce Miller's last two starts have been really tough. We'll see what he does tonight. We're recording before Bryce Miller takes the mound Monday against the Marlins. George Kirby, two of his last three starts, he's gotten blown up. Logan's two of his last three starts, he has not looked great. Brian Wu's second start looked better. He's still a rookie. 
there has been a lot of ups and downs past Castillo the last couple of weeks with this rotation. So yeah, it's a little concerning because this is supposed to be the anchor of this team. This is supposed to be top five rotation in baseball. You would say for what, what should actually be your strength and for what a team at least at the beginning of the season considered themselves a World Series team. Yeah, top five. But if we look at it right now, the Mariners still lead baseball in war as a pitching staff by nearly a full win. That has not changed. And we'll get into some of these strange oddities with this stretch as well. Um, but regardless, the Mariners over the last two weeks have the worst ERA in baseball. The worst. It's over six and a half. As of right now, their starters sit 15th in ERA. The bullpen is 10th in ERA. There's That's not ERA predictors. That's just flat ERA and earned runs. The ERA predictors are a little bit more favorable, shockingly, to this team. I I, I can't I, I haven't watched this group over the last two weeks and said, you know, they're getting pretty unlucky. I haven't really thought that. It, it seems like they have got they have they have gotten what they have pitched, essentially, for in terms of results. Pitching and results has been in line. But the the predictors say they're a little bit unlucky. So, which I think is uh, it's kind of strange to be honest. But I think it might it might just be for the fact they they don't walk a lot of guys and usually don't give up a lot of home runs. But I mean, home runs wasn't even a case over the weekend. Yeah, they've given up a lot of home runs in the last few weeks. I mean, they've just kind of gotten knocked around. So, are you not sold that this staff's going to come back down to earth? I mean, I look at the numbers and kind of say they should because when you talk about the ERA predictors with their FIP their ex-fip, it says it should kind of slowly climb back down, but you don't sound so convinced. Yeah, so overall, uh, over the last two weeks, over this stretch, they had a 6.59 ERA. Their FIP was 4.56, sorry, which is not as bad, but not as bad as a a 6.5 ERA. And their ex-fip is a 3.92, which is crazy. Uh, we've never really used this stat on this podcast because I haven't really dove into Sierra, which is another version of uh, of ERA predictor that you can find on fan graphs. I don't know really all the intricacies of it. I know some people really love this stat. Um, that was it, that that stat was even better over these last two weeks. It, it doesn't. It's it's kind of puzzling, right? Same time frame. Mariners are tw- across baseball. Twenty second FIP. Eighth in XFIP and sixth in Sierra. That same time frame for ERA predictors. Two of those ERA predictors have them as a top ten staff in that in that stretch, which doesn't make any sense again because the eye test doesn't really prove that to me. So what do these guys have to do going forward to kind of figure it out? I mean, obviously we'll sit here and say the easy answer is just don't give up hard hit balls and throw strikes, but. I mean, how do they get some of their swagger back? How do Logan Gilbert and George Kirby start to figure it out again? Because I'm sitting here and saying they should. I mean, it's not like George Kirby's not throwing strikes, right? But he's just getting hit too hard. For Logan, when we're talking about yesterday, he was just leaving his slider right over the middle of the plate. That's like a, a little thing. George, I thought, maybe got a little bit unlucky, especially against San Diego last week. They were most of the balls that that San Diego was hitting were, was finding holes, right? They were getting hit hard, but they were finding holes a little bit more often than not. And it, it's, But I go back to Logan's day yesterday. Overall in the game, the expected batting average for the Angels, for the whole game, for all the at-bats against every pitcher was 436. <laughs> that's pretty bad. That, that's a pretty high mark for a pitching staff to give up. I don't look at that and I say, man, what an unlucky bunch. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I, I, I'm with you that maybe Kirby's start was a little unlucky in San Diego, but everybody else, it's just about, I think they have to pitch a little bit better. And they have to, not just because you need five starters, but there's being a lot asked right now of Luis Castillo, who's been unbelievable, and he's looked like a surefire all-star to his credit. But Luis Castillo is not going to be perfect every time out. So when he has his off day, there have to be guys behind him that are stepping up and filling his shoes because he is going to have clunkers. Every pitcher has his bad days. You need your Logan Gilberts, your George Kirby's, your Bryce Miller's to step up behind him and make up for some of that when he is not at the top of his game. And right now they just are going through a stretch where it hasn't been there. What's kind of funny during that two week stretch, Logan and George each got shelled twice, but sandwich in the middle, they both had one of their better starts of the season. Logan mm-hmm. went seven innings against the, against the Padres with, he had pretty like bad command. He was all over the place and still managed to go seven innings, throwing some really good sliders towards the end of that game. And then George comes out and he's pumping down the Yankees and probably should have thrown a complete game. If the Mariners had scored any number of runs in that game, he would have thrown nine and shut out the Yankees where he looked unhittable. But then around that, it, it, it was bad. So there's like a little inkling of of optimism there because we know these guys are, are good pitchers and we've highlighted on this podcast what makes them good pitchers. So Logan and George, maybe not as much. Maybe it's just consistency and focus, which Scott Service said after uh, after the game yesterday on Sunday, that focus has been a problem for this team. He was mostly referring to the base pads, but I think you can make a case the pitching staff as well in terms of focus and guys not putting pitches exactly where they want to. For Bryce Miller, we're going to have to see how he responds after his two worst starts of the season tonight. Uh, you will know by the time this episode comes out on Wednesday. But uh, what I'm most worried about him would be predictability because the predictability really kind of got the best of him and a, a little thing, I guess, with his uh, with tipping his pitches as well, which we'll see how he adjusts with. But he's now going to get an extra day of rest for today. So what it's going to have to be a wait and see if this is actually going to be a, a long-term issue. Two weeks is not a large sample size. That's why they play 162 games. So over that full season, the good pitching staffs normally pitch well, and the bad pitching staffs don't. I think that's right, and every rotation goes through its ups and downs during a season, so you'd have to hope this is just kind of a roadblock in the road so far, and they find a way around it and get back to being the rotation that we know they can be, because they're going to have to, along with the offense heating up, if this team is going to go where it wants to go. Speaking of the offense here, there are a couple positive storylines we can get to this week. Believe it or not, even though it was a tough week, there are two very positive storylines we can talk about. The first one, TJ, being... Teoscar Hernandez is starting to heat up all of a sudden. He is looking not all the way back, I would say, to last year, but the peripherals of his season are looking pretty good. Um, Lots of positive. His season WRC Plus is now back up to 102 after his performance yesterday. Um, and there's also some really good things with his with his swing profile as well, which which I really like. He's chasing less. He's making more contact in the zone, um, and his barrel rate is up. I, I, I love that. And over his last two weeks, he's walking 11% of the time. 11%. <laughs> Remember, you know, we're, we're sitting here weeks ago saying like, man, this dude's striking out 10 times as much as he's, as he's walking. 11% walk rate over a two-week span. 
that's real progress right there. So good job to Oscar. They, and they, this is when they've needed it. They really have. For example, if you look on the other side, Cal Raleigh had a crummy road trip. He was just terrible this road trip. He, he did not hit well at all. But it was Teoscar in that spot really shining the light on his offensive profile alongside a really good Julio Rodriguez road trip as well. By the numbers, Teoscar Hernandez went 11 for 29 on the road trip. So he hit 379, two home runs, seven runs batted in. For the month of June, he's now, as a result, hitting 379. And he's OPSing 1110. Now, small sample size, but for a handful or two of games, that is awesome. And to your point, his batted, bo- his batted ball profile, there we go, looks much closer to what it's been in past years, especially the past three years where he's been dominant compared to what it's been the first two months of the season. So there is a lot of positives with Teoscar here swinging the other way, which the Mariners have needed. I mean, we've talked about for a few weeks straight now, the guys that have to get going, Ty, Teoscar, Gino. Now, while Ty's not hitting for a ton of power still, he is starting to hit just in general offensively. And if him and Teoscar are going, that's two important pieces of the puzzle. Again, with with Julio, with Julio in that mix and 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 Jared having another hot month, that's all of a sudden turns into a half decent offense that me, you and I wouldn't spend all week complaining about. Which which is nice. Let me read you these numbers on his swing profile the last couple of weeks. I'm going to compare this to his season averages just so you can see how stark it is. Over the last two weeks, he's only swung at 24.8% uh, percent of pitches outside of the zone. For the season, he's swung at 38% of pitches outside of the zone. That's pretty significant right there, chasing a lot less. He's making contact with 50% of pitches outside of the strike zone, opposed to 48.3 for the season. Also improvement. Inside the zone, pretty much the same, 70, swinging at pitches inside the zone 73% of the time. for the full season. Now, zone contact percentage, which is probably the most important stat here, is up 5%. 85% zone contact rate over the last two weeks, and he's just sitting at uh, 80.7% for the season. Uh, And his swinging strike percentage has dropped from 17.3% for the season to 11% over the last two weeks. Tangible, noticeable, uh, healthy improvements for Teoscar Hernandez, both stat-wise and rate-wise when you look at his swings. That's all great. If he can do that the rest of the year, walk anywhere from 8 to 10% of the time, keep the strikeout somewhat down, and hit the ball as hard as he's hitting it, how much more can the Mariners ask for? Now, the one thing I will sit here and ask for is that he hits a little bit better at T-Mobile Park. I mean, his OPS at home is 622 as we speak, which is not great. But he did just get hot on the road trip, which is what brought his road OPS up. So hopefully where he hits, when he starts hitting with authority at home, his home OPS can go up a little bit too. That would be the one thing I look at. But other than that, you got to be pretty happy with where he's at. I mean, that ball he hit on Sunday in Anaheim, it was scorched. Now, it had big Chris Paul hits huge three to cut the deficit vibes (laughs) when he hit it. But you were waiting to put that one in. I was because it just had that feel. They were down six nothing at that point. It felt like all the air had come out of the balloon. And I felt great for Teoscar that he hit that home run because it's great to see him getting back on track. It just felt like the game was so far out of hand. By the way, I was thinking about this as I tweeted this out because we did tweet that exact caption out when he hit the home run. How exactly did this become such a big meme? I mean, I know it was posted as a YouTube video, but the guy that posted the video, 
Like, did he do that on purpose? Did he think it was going to go as viral as it did? I, like, I don't even know. I, I couldn't give you a concrete answer on that. I do think the NBA tweeted out a clip along those lines where it's Chris Paul hits a three for the, uh, to trim the, the, the Mavericks lead to, uh, lead to 42. I think it was along those lines. And then people added the Kevin Harlan, the uh, Kevin Harlan call underneath Paul for three. i gotta think the next step the next time that happens and and we tweet something out along the lines of that i think we need to take the extra 30 seconds throw the highlight into a video editor and put the kevin harlan uh soundtrack underneath yeah or we put an aaron goldsmith call or somebody underneath like if if, if teoscar hits a home run like that again when it's an eight run deficit and you take that Goldie call of, of Dylan Moore's Grand Slam against the Astros, you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Something like that. The thing is, what the next step for Teoscar is that he needs to now do this multiple years in a row. The C, the Chris Paul special, and that's that's what he needs to do. So we'll keep track of that, uh, and we'll make we'll look to make some uh, noticeable improvements of that next time we uh, we dig that one out. But uh, good stuff from Teoscar Hernandez, and hope that he keeps uh, heating up as they're back at home uh, this week. Another positive storyline for the Mariners: Andres Munoz is back, and thank. Goodness, he's back. He has appeared twice as of, again, recording here on Monday. Uh, and he has looked every bit the part that the Mariners have missed. He hasn't missed, he hasn't missed a beat. He's been put in high leverage situations, especially that last situation he was in. He's pumping 101 miles an hour. Slider looks nasty. He's getting the best hitters in baseball to look silly. He looks like he hasn't missed a beat. And the Mariners need that guy desperately because we have seen the top relievers in this bullpen worked very hard through the first two months. They've thrown in a lot of games in high leverage where usually these are spots that Munoz gets much more opportunity and he just wasn't healthy. Now that he's back, it feels like a lot more pressure can be taken off guys like Brash, like Munoz, like Topa, like Spire, all those guys. Oh wait, I said, I said Brash. I said Munoz in that group. I meant Seawald. There we go. So uh, I was going to say, I'm not going to include Seawald in this group because we consider Seawald an elite reliever. I'm, I'm thinking along the guise of, of, of Brash, Spire, Gott, uh, and Topa, who we're all very high on. We really like their stuff. Well, you can throw Saucedo in there as well. High on their stuff. We think they're really good bullpen pieces. The difference between Andres Munoz and Paul Seawald and the rest of those guys, it, it's, a, it's a pretty significant gap. And then the gap between Munoz and Seawald is also, I would say, pretty significant. They're, they're on a tier of their own. But Munoz, I mean, I think we can put him on Mars and put Seawald on the moon and the rest of those guys are on Earth. I love Matt Brash's stuff. And this is what we hope Matt Brash eventually gets to these days. But how refreshing was it to watch Andres Munoz go in and he faced, uh, in the span of two outings, he faced Fernando Tatis, he faced Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and Anthony Rendon. He struck all four of them out and made them all look stupid. All of them. There's just no one close to what Andres Munoz does in that bullpen, outside of Munoz in that bullpen. There's no one close. And he and it took him two appearances to say, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm a top five reliever in baseball. Hope you didn't forget that. Hands down, he's top five. When that guy's healthy, he's one of the best on the planet. Now, Brash last year in the second half was a little bit closer to what Munoz was doing, but we know Brash has been unlucky at points this year. His command's been a little bit spotty at times. So, yeah, he's more right now in the group of Topa, 
Spire, Saucedo, Gott. And those guys have all been good. They just haven't been the level of Seawald and Munoz. But to have that absolute fire breather and alpha in the back of your bullpen, <laughs> just pumping gas and snapping off ridiculous sliders, yeah, it makes a huge difference. You could tell that he wasn't back there. As good as the bullpen had been, you could just tell Munoz wasn't back there in the month of May. How refreshing is it? You put a guy in, in the in the bullpen, you're like, uh, you take a guy to the bullpen, you put him in the game, it's like these three outs are like, you're getting these outs, no matter yeah. what. One, two, three, it's, it's happening. And that's what you feel like when you, Munoz is on the mound. No offense to those other guys. It's just not as certain. For sure. I mean, there's a reason the Mariners worked him like crazy in the postseason last year because he's that good. They're like, who do we absolutely trust in these gut-wrenching situations? Munoz. We saw, again, even even the couple situations you've been in so far. We talk about the high leverage thing. I know against the Padres, the Mariners had a little bit of a cushion, but you could tell Scott Service was not messing around in that game. He's like, we need this win. We have to secure it. We just have to get some momentum going. I don't care that we're up three or four runs. We're getting Munoz in, and he's facing the best guys, and he's going to go get him out. That's what he did. And, yeah, high leverage anywhere from the six to the – Six to the ninth inning. I mean, he's getting in the middle of the order. And then Seawald's getting in the middle of the order the other time. Like, mm-hmm. you have those two guys that you can trust instead of just having Paul Seawald take the middle of the order once. And then you're like, well, who's going to get the middle of the order the other time? I don't know. But now you have both of them, which is uh, which is really nice. We have a couple of uh, smaller storylines as well that we'll touch on here very briefly um, as it pertains to the Mariners this week. We'll start off with one that is relevant as of today, and he might have pitched by the time you hear this. Ty Adcock's going to be on the Mariners roster today, a former teammate of George Kirby at Elon, eighth-round pick in the 2019 draft. Uh, fun stat for you, Lyles. When he debuts, this will be the first time in Major League history that three Elon players are in the Major Leagues at the same time. So fun fact of that, uh, he throws up to 99. He's got a sharp slider. Uh, 20 innings in Arkansas this year, a one three five ERA. Who's the third guy from Elon? It'll be Kirby Adcock. Is it Kyle Baranovich? John Brebia. Hmm. He's a giant. Okay. All right. There we go. So three guys from Elon. Well, shout out the state of North Carolina. There and, and Elon's like one of the afterthought colleges in that state too. Between you know, there's a million of them. UNC, Wake Forest, who's going to the College World Series, Duke, NC State. I could go on forever, but yeah, shout out Elon. Look for Ty Adcock. Most of you probably don't know this name unless you really religiously follow the minor leagues, kind of like TJ and I do. He's 26 years old. He has not thrown many minor league innings. In fact, he's thrown 39 innings in affiliated ball because he's been injured and because of 2020. But he's got a 1.35 ERA and an 0.55 whip this year between High A Everett and Double A Arkansas. And the Mariners liked what they saw enough to say, let's get this guy up. With Penn Murphy now injured again, this is who they call upon. And Penn Murphy injured, what is it, the flexor mass? It was the same injury he had. He re-aggravated it after facing one batter yesterday. Just annoying stuff. But uh, they will call up Ty Adcock in his spot. This does tell us that Perlander Barroa is not quite ready for the major leagues. We imagine, we thought he was going to be next up out of the minor leagues, but doesn't really think so. Um, I, I think, his, yeah, his commands, I think, still all over the place. But Ty Adcock, again, despite his limited, uh, his limited innings, he, he's got good stuff. Uh, and we heard about this when he got drafted. It's like, hey, watch out for this guy. 
I will note, you mentioned his pro innings. Across pro and college, he's only thrown 70 and two-thirds. That's it. I don't think he's going to be starting anytime soon, that's for sure. He is there to be a bullpen arm. So, yeah, we'll see what he's got. We know he's got good stuff. And you can jump from double-A to the big leagues pretty seamlessly a lot of the times these days. That's what they were going to do with Baroa if he had been the call-up. He's not getting innings in Tacoma right now or anything like that. But, yeah, with Baroa, I, I think they just want him to refine the command a little bit and throw a few more strikes. I still think we'll see him at some point this summer. It might just not be right now. So, yeah, Ty Adcock, he'll be interesting to watch. Hopefully he's just another good arm in the bullpen. The other piece of Mariners news here, very small, but could have big league implications. They signed Didi Gregorius to a minor league deal this week. So Gregorius played about 60 games with the Phillies last year. Longtime big leaguer, had some really good years on the Yankees during the late 2010s. He's now going to be in the minors for the Mariners after playing a few months down in Mexico so far to start this year. I feel like there's some implications revolving around the big league roster behind this signing. I think I'm a little bit on the other side of this. I'm I'm not quite sure. I, I think he might just stick in Tacoma and be an emergency option, but I don't know if they signed him quite with the intention of putting him in the big leagues. If they did, I'm not really sure what the rationale was behind it. Yes, D.D. Gregorius has had a long and fruitful big league career, and he was just torching the, the Mexican league. He was hitting 359, 430, uh, 431, 777 with a league leading 11 home runs in 26 games. But over the last two seasons with the Phillies, he had an OPS of barely over 500. His batted ball data sucks. His average exit velocity last year allowed was 84 and a half. That's in the bottom five percentile. He doesn't have, he, he, you know, he does have, I guess, shortstop power, but his shortstop power is dead pull in the last two ballparks. He's played a primarily amount of, uh, primary amount of games in have been Yankee Stadium and Citizens Bank Park, two notorious hitters parked, especially for lefty pull hitters like D.D. Gregorius. There's just not a whole lot I like about his profile. But then again, I get it like he's replacing Colton Wong eventually. Okay, I guess you can't get much worse than Colton Wong, who I believe has been the worst everyday player in baseball by war. Um, So I guess... That's what I'm getting at. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen definitively. It just seems like between the fact that Colton Wong has basically been relegated to the last guy on the bench and he's barely playing these days. And the fact they went and signed an infielder like Gregorius. And it wasn't like they just signed another minor league depth piece. Maybe that's all Gregorius ends up being. But because he has all this big league time, it just feels like he's there potentially to be a bench bat if they're ready to move on from Colton Wong. I don't know if that's what they do or not. It just feels like that's a chance that that's what they're doing. And Gregorius is that security net. We'll have to wait and see. How are you going to feel when he gets the call up over Jake Shiner? Not great. Maybe not great. (laughs) I'd still love to see Shiner up here, dog. I mean, come on. The guy is still hitting. He's not my minor leaguer this week, I will say. But he has continued to hit again this week. Do you see the Mariners highlighted him on their minor league I did see that, yep. I thought of you. I'm glad. I'm really glad because, again, now other people are noticing. Hey, we'll have to wait and see. I'm just curious to see how this will eventually play out with DD. Even if he does make the big leagues, I'm not sure. I'm not not really just sold how long... uh, how long he'll say, especially again, he just does not hit the ball hard at all. There's nothing and, and his maybe most important and glaringly didn't notice this uh, from his last full season. Uh, he was in the first percentile of outs above average. That's not great. 
No, that that's probably the worst possible thing to have with the batted ball profile he does. Maybe it's just a depth piece. Again, we'll see. I I, I just I'm just circling that and saying maybe there's something more here. But again, time will tell, right? Time will tell. Uh, we didn't get to ask Larry Stone about his thoughts on Didi Gregorius, but it was great to have Larry, who I think he might be the most tenured person we've had on this podcast as a compliment to Larry, a longtime columnist for the Seattle Times, author of Edgar Martinez's autobiography, um, full of stories. He's a co-host of the Extra Innings podcast with Ryan Divish. Uh, we did talk about that a little bit, which was funny. Um, but it was really great having Larry Stone on again. He's He has been around this game a long time and is always able to, to bring a lot of really good insight. He was great. I mean, between our Mariners talk with him, between the talk about the book, there are some seriously great Edgar stories that he has, by the way. So if you're an Edgar Martinez fan, which if you're listening to this podcast, you're pro- you probably are like TJ and I are, you're going to want to listen to that because there are some things that I didn't know about Edgar and his whole Hall of Fame case and and growing up that Larry got to talk about in the book that he told us that were super interesting. So hopefully it intrigues you guys even half as much as it did us. I mean, really just all around awesome conversation. So with that, let's uh, get to our interview and let's hear from this from the Seattle Times, Larry Stone. All right, we welcome on Larry Stone, sports columnist for the Seattle Times and co-host of the Extra Innings podcast with Ryan Divish. Larry, thanks so much for coming on. We're excited to have you. We wanted to start this off by giving you a chance to refute a certain claim. So when we had Ryan on a couple months ago, he was talking about your guys' podcast, and he described podcasting with you and listening to you on the other end as sounding like you're in a cave in Afghanistan. So I just wanted to give you the chance to respond to those claims. Well, I'm in a cave in Bellevue. Is that uh, maybe that's closer to the truth? Well, there've been times when my computer has not been the greatest as far as uh, podcasting and zooming. Uh, you you tell me. I don't know. Does it sound okay right now? Or uh, uh, I think it sounds great. Okay, it does not it's... sound like you're in the Middle East. No. Okay, there you go. Uh, <laughs> I think you know Ryan is. Uh, Ryan's a curmudgeon, and he likes to make it sound worse than it is sometimes. Do you like? Do you prefer having that distance though with him? Because you realize that when you guys spend time together at spring training in the same condo while you guys are recording, like close, it just doesn't feel right when you're you're not in the cave. <laughs> Actually, I like doing him in person better because then uh, then if there's some technological uh, foul up, we can solve it together and. Uh, so, and, and I do the, the dirty little secret, but I do enjoy his company and hanging out with him too. So I, the spring training is kind of like the highlight of my year as far as works. So it always has been. So don't tell him. that. It's always good because you can hear uh, the, the best part about when you guys do those podcasts in person is that I can hear the drinks being poured in the background during the podcast. You yeah. guys will go for what, like an hour and 20 minutes. And you could just hear ice going in the glass. You can hear it being poured. You can hear glasses down on the table. And, you know, I think I honestly don't think there's a better way to podcast than doing it that well, way. Well, that, that's mostly him, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> I eat the bananas. He, he drinks the drinks. That's our that's our partnership. <laughs> so I got to follow up with that. And I'm glad TJ brought up spring training because I didn't even think to ask this before getting you on. But now I'm glad I'm going to. Can you give us the story behind the bananas and these spring training bananas with you and Ryan? 
Yeah, I can't. So every year we we share a condo. He's there for the whole uh, seven, six, seven weeks. I, I only show up for a week or two. And, you know, uh, first day I, I go out and always buy groceries it's, it's for the, to stock up for the couple of weeks that I'm there. And I always buy a bunch of banana, a banana bunch, you know, and with the idea that I'm going to eat them all. And then the first couple of years, I would eat maybe four of the six and then leave two and they would disintegrate. And I, this was not intentional at the time. And he would he would take pictures of it, and uh, it became a, a kind of a running joke. And then after the first two years, uh, it became a shtick, and we <laughs> you know, intentionally would leave a banana there to rot because people seemed to enjoy it. So, uh, first couple of years, it was totally uh, unintentional, and it just happened uh, organically. <laughs> Maybe not a good word to use with bananas, but. Um, uh, then after that, it was, uh, it, I got to admit, we, we, we planned it and it was kind of a, a shtick. What was the latest you've eaten one of those bananas? <laughs> well, I would, uh, I mean, I'd eat it. I'd leave it there when I left. Uh, and sometimes they would go for four weeks before he was, before he left. Cause I would, I often go early in spring and, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> solve a computer deal here. Um, he, he would, uh, uh, so so they had a long time to disintegrate and, uh, <laughs> and and get progressively uglier. Well, I'll tell you what, people still enjoy the whole bit of it because it's still Ryan's Twitter photo to this day. Yeah, I know. People, for some reason, people love the whole banana. Uh, saga. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that's not what I'm remembered for. Is the Larry Stone? He had the rotten banana. I, I, I hope I have a better legacy than that. Well, I'll tell you what. I think people have fonder memories these days of <laughs> your and Ryan's banana bit than the current version of the Seattle Mariners. So <laughs> if if that's a transition, and we were going to dive into the team a little bit here, I know you just wrote a column this week after what was a pretty disastrous weekend in Texas, kind of talking about the state of where you feel like the team's at. So with the lack of offense, I mean, were you one of those people that felt like they should have been significantly adding through free agency this winter? Yeah, you know, that's a tough question. Uh, You know, I I felt they had a team that could compete for the title, even without that going into, uh, you know, for the division title going into the season. But I also felt surprised that they didn't go more aggressively. It seemed like a year to be aggressive in free agency because they had won, you know, a playoff series. They had a good young core. They had excitement. They had the the budget, I think, to, to do so. Uh, I mean, you look at it case by case and it gets a little bit harder to, uh, you know, to, to be critical because, you know, they weren't going to give judge that, money or Bogart's money, that, that, that sort of thing. And some of the guys that, that people clamored for have been really bad. <laughs> you know, Carlos Correa hasn't been very good. But uh, I, I do feel like they should have addressed the, the, the offense better than just getting, you know, a Tommy Lastella, which, you know, Ryan and I predicted in spring training that he wasn't going to make it beyond <laughs> April. And, uh, Cause he didn't, he looked shot in spring training and, and 
Pollock. Uh, you know, Wong, I, I did think Wong was going to be was a nice pickup, and I thought Teoscar was a nice pickup. It's just they they needed somebody a, a stronger bat at, at at DH, and I think that's that's played out when your DHs are hitting one fifty in June. You said in your column, blind faith is is never a solid foundation to <laughs> to to build upon. Is mm-hmm. that I, is that in the sense of I would say over? I don't even know the the best word for this. Oh, like o- overestimating, I say what you currently have. Well, I think is it's that a, what you it, meant by that. What I meant was that just because I think a lot of people think, well, they 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 turned it around last year. Uh, with this amazing stretch, and I think they could do it again, and that's blind faith to me. And it, it, as Ryan and I both have talked about a lot of times, it's it's unrealistic to expect another fourteen game win streak or another stretch of I think it's twenty two out of twenty five wins. Uh, you can't dig yourself that deep of a hole. But they are only five games out uh, of the wild card, so they still can very much capable of getting hot. And being in title contention, or not title contention, but play, wild card contention. But the difference this year is that there's these uh, these three teams above them that are all headed for 97 wins or above at the pace they're at now. Now you could be skeptical of whether a team like the Orioles uh, can can maintain that, uh, and and that's valid. But I do think the Mariners can have to win more than 90 games to to get that spot in. You have to wonder if they're if they're capable of that the way they they've started this year. How do you i how do you assess blame in a situation like this? Yeah, it's I think you give some of it to ownership for that's kind of murky how you know what sort of parameters they've given the the general manager or you know Depoto not officially general manager anymore, but he still pretty much has those duties. Some are, some's DePoto for the guys that he's signed. Uh, really, none of them have hit yet. That, that I think he, he other than, I, I do, you have to give him credit for the bullpen signs that some under the radar bullpen guys that have really been good and has and allowed them to, to continue the bullpen success they've had in past years. And, that's an area where I think he deserves total credit for, for turning over that bullpen year in and year out and yet coming up with somehow coming up with arms that, that are power arms that are good. But, and then, uh, you know, the got to give some to service because his job is to get the players to play and the players themselves uh, deserve some of the blame too for, for not living up to their, the old saying, the back of their baseball card, Teoscar Hernandez is a better player than he's shown. And maybe he's starting to show that now. He had, he's had a good stretch here. And if he got hot, you, you still see what what this team could be if you've got Julio and Teoscar and Kelnick and, and Suarez, you know, all hot at the same time. They, 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 there's the seeds of a dynamic offense there. But there's just way too much swing and miss right now. And way too many guys who are, are inconsistent and and really they haven't been able to have a consistent stretch of production yet this year. I would just say personally, I'm I'm at a crossroads where I'm not sure how much blame actually gets leveled on the players versus based on uh I guess everyone else around building this team. 
because at some point, like we've continued to talk about, like these players are all better than they are. And it's so puzzling to watch a group of players who were all pretty good last year all get worse, except one, Jared Kelnick, who had set the bar about as low as humanly possible (laughs) for his career standards before breaking out and looking like a major leaguer this year. All these guys, they, you know, they have their own hitting coaches. They train elsewhere in the offseason. They have their own personal hitting philosophies on top of whatever the Mariners do. So you look at that, you're like, okay, that maybe the team wasn't built right, right, but you know, these players and and their, I guess, execution for how they play baseball, that's like like we're relying on them to also show up and do their part as well. And it just doesn't seem like that's happened. Yeah. It's uh for whatever reason, the team hasn't clicked yet really this year. I do think they have a sustained run in them. And I thought before they uh, played the Yankees and the uh, the Rangers, I thought they were on the verge of that because the one thing that this team had was four starters, I thought, who you could count on to be dominant on any particular day. And that takes you a long way. And then Kirby went out and threw a stinker and so did Gilbert and Bryce Miller now has had two uh, bad outings in a row. And, uh, you know, Brian Wu, who took Marco's place when he got hurt, was was lit up. So now you have you have uh, there's no questions about I, I never had any issues with or questions about Gilbert and Kirby's ability to bounce back. They just had bad starts and it was poorly timed. And they've both come back with a vengeance. But I think you have legitimate questions now about both Miller and Wu. And that's for 40% of your rotation. So those the next outings from both of those guys are going to be huge. If Miller has three in a row where he's, you know, he's uh, lit up and Wu does the struggles, he, they're going to have to deal with both of those spots. And I don't know how much depth they have in the minors right now to to fill those spots. Uh, I guess Emerson Hancock is is the next in line. Uh, or, or else uh, you know, Tommy Malone, and I don't think, Love Tommy Malone, but I don't think anyone wants to see that. So, uh, you know, I thought the the, the pitching was going to carry them on a streak, but uh, you know, in the, against really good teams, the Yankees and the Rangers, it let them down. And uh, so, um, you, you know, you're right. The the players they just haven't lived up. And starting with Julio, we anointed Julio as the baseball's newest sensation, the face of baseball. A superstar, and I think he certainly has that ability and will be, but he hasn't uh, he hasn't played to the level that I think we all expected. Even even so so Julio is much better than most players in the league, and he's still roughly on a thirty thirty pace and, and and all that. But we all know that 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 we 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 could see we worth expecting better Julio than what he's given us. I'm going to put you in a time machine here. I feel like this could be a fun exercise. If we go back a year ago when, you know, it was mid-June and the Mariners were way under 500 before that whole 14-game win streak and they turned everything around, what was your view on the team back then, back in 2022, when they were at their low point versus now? Because they don't have as much ground to make up as they did last year. Yeah. But I was interested to get your comparison on this between what the mood was in your mind last year versus this year, I think it was more dire last year. To be honest, uh, you know, it it looked like they were dead in the water. Uh, <laughs> there were questions about whether there was going to be, you know, 
the personnel changes, the manager was going to be fired. All those kind of questions were lurking. Uh, and I, I don't think anyone really saw you, you did the math. Like if they play six, if the, if the Astros or, or whoever was above them, the Blue Jays play 500 ball, they'll have to play 625 ball. And that seemed ludicrous, but that's exactly what they played. You know, they did what they had to do. Uh, I think this year, having gone through last year's experience, I think this is a better team than it was last year. Uh, more, I think the pitching is better with Castillo there now. I don't know if Castillo was even here yet at the time you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, losing Robbie Ray was was a blow, obviously, but Miller for five starts looked like he was even better than than Robbie. He was performing better than anybody, so. I do think he, there's a chance he could get that back, and that would be a, go a long way. But I think the and the bullpen I think is just as good, especially with Munoz back. Uh, so I think I, I feel a little bit better about the team, but I don't know if they're if I feel better about their chances of making the playoffs uh, much better because just from what I said, the the teams above so many teams above them, and with the with the the eighth, the Oakland A's factor is that. With everybody cleaning up on the A's, the win totals are going to be much higher. I don't know if they, they think 90 will do it this year. And when you're sitting at 500, you need to get above 90. Uh, that's daunting. I think in terms of disappointment, I mean, we had the, there's the playoff disappointment. There's the, all the teams in front of them. There's the balanced schedule, which now doesn't mean all the teams in the American League East can can eat up on each other and, and, and worry about all that. There's going to be less cannibalization, I think, at the top. But I think outside of playoffs, the other terms of disappointment with this season is you're hosting the All-Star Game. You have a chance to put your franchise in front of baseball and market it to other free agents, which we keep talking about. Why don't players want to sign here? Why don't they have a reason to sign here? You had an excellent you know, marketing and selling opportunity to a lot of players to see some of your fans, to see the atmosphere, to see the ballpark to see all of your good players in the all-star game. And now we sit here and wonder who, like who from the Mariners is even going to make the all-star game. Julio, maybe by vote. Uh, if he really goes off this next month, perhaps that's a, that's a possibility. There will probably be a pitcher there, but it's a far cry from, I would say the last time the Mariners hosted the all-star game in 2001, when they were the center of the baseball world, they had eight all-stars. They had four guys in the starting lineup Everyone, you know, all eyes were on Seattle and it was this magical experience. You mm-hmm. were there for that. And this, and barring a turnaround, this is going to be, I, I would say, a very disappointing performance to, to, to showcase yourself and market yourself to the rest of the league in that point. I'm sure, I'm, I'm just curious what you think of that, Larry. Yeah, no, that's a very valid point. I've, 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 I, I wrote a column to that effect. Uh, I believe that they envisioned exactly what you said. It was going to be this magical showcase, uh, as it was in 2001. I've, I've often said and written that I think that All-Star Week was the high point of Mariner baseball. They were, uh, they were running away with the division on the way to a record number of wins. That, uh, they had eight All-Stars. You know, Lou was there as a coach, so... Practically the whole team was there. The weather all week was beautiful. Uh, it couldn't have been a better atmosphere for baseball in Seattle. And then from that point, you know, there was 9-11 happened two months later. They they lost in the playoffs, never 
to return until last year. So, you know, kind of if you do a, a, a bell graph, that was the absolute peak. And then it went down the other side. So uh, I think that they envisioned that it would uh, be back at the top there by this year. And you're right. When you look at who might make the team, I do think Julio is going to make the team one way or the other. They, I, I, I saw an article ESPN had a, a projection of who would be the All-Stars, the entire All-Star team, and they had Julio as a reserve. And what their comment was, baseball is not going to have the All-Star game in Seattle without Julio Rodriguez. And I, I believe there's some truth to that. And uh, he's got a month. If he gets hot, uh, I think his stats will justify that too. Now, Kelnick for a while looked like he was going to be a slam dunk pick, but uh, he's headed in the wrong direction. And right now, I I think that's borderline unless he gets hot again. Uh, I think Castillo is going to make it. And suddenly there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of support being thrown Seawald's way as kind of a dark horse. But I think, I think Kirby or Gilbert are are possibilities as well. So uh, maybe they'll have three. It's not quite the eight that they had in 2001. Yeah, and they can use all the sales pitching they can get. I mean, and, and this is probably wishful thinking for Mariners fans everywhere, but to TJ's point, to your point about marketing yourself, well, there might be a guy that's going to show up at the All-Star game that you might want to market yourself to for next winner who happens to play two ways. And again, it's probably a shot in the dark, but it doesn't mean they're not hoping for it and probably want to try for it. Yeah, I mean, if I were in charge, I would throw every resource I had at Shohei and... Maybe one way to look at their inactivity this past year was that they were holding their resources for for a run at at uh, Shohei Otani. And I know a lot of people are skeptical, and I hear from them all the time, like, "Give it up! The, this organization will never do what it takes to get Shohei Otani." Maybe they're right, but when you look at all the positives he would bring, I mean, they're on uh, both you know, from every standpoint on the field, which is obvious. Uh, as a drawing card, as a, as a link to the Asian market, uh, prestige to to lure other players here, uh, he would be unbelievable. And but who knows how much he's going to cost? The, the estimates are like half a billion as a starting point. So that's right. you have to you'd have to swallow hard to to, to uh, give that kind of uh, money, but. No, there's going to be a lot of teams who are going to be willing to do it because it's like getting it's like getting uh, an all-star hitter and an all-star pitcher. You're getting two players in one, so that has to play into the salary that, that he gets as well. I mean, maybe maybe you give him a little more in a shorter-term deal. I could see that. But I do think – I'm not so sure the, the all-star game uh, really matters so much. He's been to Seattle, you know, the – Many many times he he doesn't need to be sold on Seattle as a, as a city. Uh, it, it'll it'll word is that he likes it here that he likes Seattle and, and he's fond of the city. There was uh, there was a school of thought that he didn't want to come. The reason he didn't come here in the first place is that he didn't want to be in Ichiro's shadow. Uh, I don't think that's a problem anymore because nobody's in Shohei Otani's shadow, including Ichiro. So I, he's carved his own mark in the game of baseball, he doesn't have to worry about each row's shadow. So I, I, I think that may play in the Mariners' favor, but who knows? Who knows what what's going to be the deciding factor? I don't think anybody can honestly say they know. You know, if we were going to transition again a little bit here, I mean, 
going back to the early 2000s, obviously, well, and, and certainly the 1990s, but just on the point of the All-Star game, you know, it was a team that featured Edgar Martinez pretty heavily. And I know something that you've done in your career that you're really proud of is you helped him write his autobiography, which is pretty awesome. I still haven't had the chance to read it. I'd love to, but I was hoping you could give us a little bit of insight to that on how that idea was formed, kind of how Edgar came to you with the idea and how he picked you of all people to help him write it. Well, uh, first of all, I came to him with the idea. <laughs> he didn't come oh. to me. So, um, you know, I covered him. Uh, I came to Seattle in 96. So I covered him through the end of his career in 04. So I had a good relationship with him and through his retirement uh, and his return as the hitting coach. Um, you know, and I wrote a lot of articles advocating him for the Hall of Fame. At the time we did the book, he was not in the Hall of Fame yet. Um, he had been, uh, he'd fallen short. You know, you're on the ballot for 10 years. And I think it was the eighth year and he was still short. Uh, but I just got the, the, the idea that he was worthy of a book. I, 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 in 2001, I had gone to Puerto Rico to do, uh, that was the year A-Rod joined the, the, uh, the Rangers and the Rangers opened the season against the Blue Jays in Puerto Rico. It was the first game, major league game played in Puerto Rico. So the paper sent me to Puerto Rico to cover that game. Uh, and I pitched the idea, well, while I'm there, I'll go to, Edgar's town of Dorado, where he grew up and do a big story. And Edgar helped me with that. He, uh, you know, we had an in-depth interview about his upbringing. He set me up with relatives and friends in Dorado who, who met me there and showed me around and turned into a really good story, uh, that, that, you know, he liked and all that. So that kind of planted the seed that there's more, that there's even more there, I thought. And, and I had the roots of his story. So I, uh, I was in spring training that, that year. I guess it would have been 18, 2018, or maybe I can't even remember anymore. And I just uh, approached him on one of the backfields and said I was interested in doing his autobiography. I thought it was warranted. And uh, he thought about it for a second, and he just said, okay. So <laughs> that was it. That was how it happened. I asked him, and he said he thought about it for about five seconds and said, okay. So all during that year, that season, uh, when he was the hitting coach, I wasn't traveling with the team. So when the team was home, once a week, I would go out to his house and sit in his living room and turn on the tape recorder, and we just talked about his life sort of chronologically. We talked for an hour, hour and a half at a time. And that was about as much as either of us could handle. And so we did that throughout the season. And then by the end of the season, I had the story, and uh, I took some a couple of weeks off and just uh, – turned it into a book at that point. Uh, maybe, maybe it took me about a month and we were working with Edgar, of course, setting him the chapters and, uh, but it was his story. And, uh, and we, that's, that's how it came to be. And it, uh, it was published by triumph. And, uh, and then I, I don't know if it helped him get in the hall of fame, but it was, uh, he was, I think he made it on the next ballot after the, after the book came out. And that was another highlight was that uh, Edgar allowed me to be with him when he got the Hall of Fame call. I, you know, if you asked me to rate my the highlights of my career, I think that might be number one. Uh, it was in New York City. He had gone to New York City because it's his daughter's birthday and she wanted to see a Broadway play. 
and they also have a big Hall of Fame press conference in New York City for the people who are elected. So they thought, well, if he does make it, you know, it's looking good because of, you know, Mr. Tibbs, the, the Hall of Fame tracker had him at like 85%. But that, you know, he's been high on on that tracker before and not made it. So they weren't they weren't convinced completely that he was going to make it, but at least he'd be in New York. So uh, I proposed, I asked him if I could be with him. And so I was in the, you know, in the hotel suite when he got the call. It was just me, him, his kids, his, Holly, his wife, uh, a close family friend, his brother, and uh, Tim Heavily of the Mariners. So, you know, to have that privilege of seeing a guy make the Hall of Fame and, and you get the call about an hour before the show on on MLB Network. So, and you're sworn to secrecy. So, like, I was one of 12 people in the world who knew that he was a Hall of Famer for about an hour. And uh, uh, it was just, just an incredible, incredible day that I'll never forget. You mentioned during the course of this in, in 2001 when you went back to his hometown. I was rereading that article before we are doing this mm-hmm. interview, and it was really fascinating. So I'm just kind of curious in your stance, what really stood out of uh, from from that visit about the the impact he made on on that baseball community while he was there, while he was a youngster, yeah. and then as he you know has grown to be be a professional yeah. and and be an all time great. Well, first of all, it was just how modest his upbringing was. I mean, the, the these were the, this was not a, a rich community, and so um, you know he he came from very humble beginnings, and the, the whole story about. I mean, about how he was raised by his grandparents, I found very compelling. Uh, but uh, I remember going to like the little food stands near his in his town, and and there would be uh, framed pictures of Edgar. You know, on uh, there, it, it, that's how much he meant that pe- people had his picture on display at the at the places of business. And I was in, I interviewed one woman, and she goes wait a second she ran into her house and came back out and showed me an autographed picture she had of Edgar that she had up so just you could just see what he meant and everybody uh, unanimously just uh, they, they just revered him as, a, as both a person and a player and because he'd get he, he he would get back to us to, to Dorado he'd always come back he'd hold a like a, a picnic kind of thing to raise money um, that sort of thing so uh you know, he never forgot his roots, and they never forgot him. What I think is the most fascinating thing about his upbringing was the decision he had to make as an 11-year-old whether or not to go to New York with his parents or not. Yeah. He decided to stay home, and I, I don't think it's that crazy to think that if he decided to follow the rest of his family to the United States, he probably wouldn't be a baseball player. Is that fair? Yeah, that's what he thinks for sure. Because yeah, his brother, who was a pretty good player, went with with uh, the family, and he his career kind of fizzled. Um, and yeah, I mean the whole story of how he kind of hid on the roof when the parent parents came to take the kids back, and he didn't want to go, so he kind of hid out until it was too late. They had to head back to the airport. I mean that's compelling stuff. And uh, uh, yeah, I think his baseball career would not have flourished like it did in Dorado. And it almost didn't happen there. He was uh, 20. And when he finally signed, he, uh, there's not many international prospects. That was before 
now Puerto Rico is part of the draft. Back then, it was sort of like the Dominican. You were a free agent, and teams found you and signed you. And if I mean, if you're not signed by age 20, you're very rarely signed. And he just, uh, it's another fluky circumstance. He, there was a tryout camp, and he'd been to a lot of tryout camps and hadn't gotten uh, any traction. And he didn't even know about this one, but one of his uh, uh, co-workers told him about it. So he, so he went, and Marty Martinez, who had uh, been a longtime Mariner coach and scout, actually managed him for one game when uh, Dick Williams was when Chuck Cotier was fired and Dick Williams was hired, there was one game when they had, while they were waiting for Dick, that Marty Martinez managed. So he's in the list of their managers, but he's the guy who saw the talent in Edgar and recommended that they sign him for a very modest amount. You know, his cousin Carmelo Martinez was a, was a solid major league player, uh, Padres, Cubs, a couple other teams. And Carmelo was already in the minor league system on his way up, but uh, you know Edgar was was had been overlooked, and Mariners took a chance. He went to Bellingham and hit like one seventy, and all, and thought he was going to be cut and head home. But they gave him another chance, and he took off from there. And he did that tryout after working an overnight, which I yeah. think is I, yeah. that, just crazy. It, it's, it's just crazy. crazy. He said he couldn't even swing the bat. Yeah. Yeah, and it was his defense that that uh, impressed Marty Martinez to sign him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a, he was pretty a good ironic, defensive, good defensive third baseman until he, uh, you know, he blew out his uh, his hamstring in uh, in Vancouver, and that's more part of the Edgar lore at an exhibition game, and that's pretty much what led him down the path to being a DH because he he was really never the same physically after that. You know, I want to go back a little bit to when you were just talking about how you were with Edgar when he got the Hall of Fame call. And if you watch his reaction on that MLB Network show, he was pretty stoic for the most part. He was obviously very grateful and you could tell he was happy. But what was it like behind the curtains yeah. after the camera turned off? Because, I mean, I yeah. have to imagine there were some real emotions there, especially after waiting 10 years. Yeah, but you're right. It was it was it was really surprising to me how stoic he was. The family was going crazy, but I mean, I asked him about that later because I wrote a column about the whole experience. And he said that he had like tricked himself psychologically to temper down his emotions. That was like a coping mechanism. So, I mean, he never really broke beyond that. I mean, I know there were, there were tears and whooping from the family and everything, but Edgar was pretty low key the whole time, even when the cameras were off. Uh, there was a cool moment right after where Holly, his wife, gathered everyone uh, and they had a toast uh, to Edgar. And I think he got a little emotional there. And then he had a million interviews to do. He was on MLB Network. He was on uh, ESPN. He was, he was doing the car wash, as they call it. The, and, uh, um, but, um, that's Edgar though. I mean, Edgar, <laughs> Edgar never gets, uh, too high. I think that's why he was able to step in against Jack McDowell with the season on the line and be as com the calmest person in the ballpark and get that double. He, he was, he was a master of the mental side of baseball. There's a whole chapter on, on that about how his, uh, 
you know, how he trained his himself to to uh, seize the moment, essentially. And I think he used those same techniques uh, when he made the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's funny because you you watch Edgar's reactions to all of his clutch moments throughout the years, and or any really just his whole career in general. And you're right, like he's very very calm, and and we keep using the word stoic, but stoic. He didn't usually show a lot of flair or emotion. In fact, like the one time you saw it a little bit was in '95. He hits that grand slam off of John Wetland, and you see him pump his fist a couple times, and that was basically the extent of it. At least from what I've seen, that yeah. was like the peak of Edgar showing emotion on the field. And the players were amazed by that. I mean, I talked to to a bunch of teammates, and they all mentioned the his his outburst after that grand slam as as being uh, uh, very out of character. And that's how they knew how big that was. I mean, he did have a temper. Uh, there was an incident in um, uh, what year would that have been? Two thousand or maybe. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but they were in Anaheim and uh, they had a lackluster game. It was in the, they were fighting for a, a playoff spot and Pat Gillick, who was the GM thought the team hadn't tried hard enough. So he told them to like, not, they weren't going to get their dinner to just leave and get on the bus to go home because they hadn't played hard enough to get a dinner or something like that. And Edgar stood up to him and they had a little bit of a shouting match uh, in the clubhouse um, but, but they, they made amends very quickly. Uh, and both, both of them have great respect for the other and that, you know, it didn't mar their relationship or anything, but that, that was a side of Edgar that I think, uh, maybe people didn't see was his competitiveness. And that's when, uh, people would say that when, when, when he did get mad, you, you, you didn't want to be around. There was also a time that he like charged a pitcher. One of the few times in his career that he charged a pitcher, and uh, I think it was uh, John McLaren who said like that he was, you know, he was his eyes were crazed. He was there was going to be no stopping. So there was that side to him too. Yeah, this has all been really interesting stuff. And, and for those of you who have not had the chance to check out Larry's book, you can go check it out. It's on Amazon. It's on. It, Larry has it as his pinned tweet on his Twitter too. If you want to find the direct link to it, um, yeah, it's awesome. I still need to read it, and it's certainly on my list of books to read. If we were going to transition to one final topic here, I would call it two pretty polar opposite personalities because just going through your career a little bit. Yeah, you've made a bunch of different stops along your journey, including some time covering the Giants in the Bay Area, and you got to cover Barry Bonds. Now, I know, let's call it from 2001 on, what his personality was, and he was certainly a fiery guy. Was he like that at all when you were there covering him, or was it kind of the pre-2001 era? Well, it was certainly pre-steroid Bonds. I'm pretty confident of that. When he came to he came to San Francisco in 93, uh, I was the beat writer for the San Francisco Examiner for 93, 94, 95. So th- I covered him as a beat writer for three years. And then I went to Seattle and started covering the Mariners, not as a beat writer. But uh, so I, I'm one of the few people who covered both Bonds and Griffey <laughs> in their prime. So that, that that's something that I'm kind of uh, proud of. Uh, but uh, Bonds was he was moody. Um, he was incredibly talented. He was the MVP that year. Uh, and almost the, the Mariners had been under 500. 
Dusty Baker took over as manager and they won 103 games and didn't make the playoffs because it was no, that was the last year pre wildcard. Um, so they, they lost the last game in Dodger Stadium to not make the playoffs, but, uh, it was <laughs> covering him was a, was a challenge because you didn't know what kind of mood he was going to be in. He could be incredibly charming and approachable and he could be snappy and, uh, uh, uh gruff as well. So, um, you know, according to the lore, he didn't start the steroids thing till 97 or 98. So, um, and he's, his body kind of reflects that he was, he was on the skinnier side back then, but it, it, that's, what's so frustrating about it is he was, a he, he was a great enough player without the steroids. He was the best player in baseball that year. And he was the best player in baseball uh, most years. So he didn't really need to. To, to turn into what he turned into. But that's neither here nor there. Were you surprised when you heard, when you, when everyone, I guess, started realizing he was doing steroids? <laughs> As someone who covered him, were, were you surprised? Were you uh, not a surprised? A little bit surprised. I mean, not that surprised. It was the era. I think uh, we started learning more and more that, uh, that, that there were, there were a lot of, <laughs> a lot of players were, were using PEDs. So, um, but then, I mean, he, he was an example of what happens when you take the best player in baseball and give him even more of an edge. That in 02, the year, in 02, I covered the World Series that year when they lost to the Giants, or to the uh, Angels. And uh, he was like, practically, you practically couldn't get him out that year. He was so incredible. And that continued, I think, uh, you know, till the end of his career, really, you look at his numbers, even in his last year when he was 42 or 43, he still had an on-base percentage of like 450 or something. Like that. I think he could have gone more years. But yeah, I mean, he just turned into the greatest force that baseball has ever seen. He had him even more so than Babe Ruth, I think, in, his, in those prime years, uh, those peak years of like 98 through 2003 or four, or whenever he retired. You know what's funny about that 2002 World Series, and and I was only about five years old at the time of that World Series, but going back and watching all, I mean, I remember watching that World Series, but I've had to go back and watch the highlights to obviously like refresh a lot of the memories. And I'll never forget seeing Bonds hit that home run off of Troy Percival. It was just an absolute moonshot, right? And I think the camera panned over to Tim Salmon at one point, and you could see him, you could lip read his mouth saying, that's the furthest ball I've ever seen hit. So just to your point, I mean, big league ball players in the World Series were just yeah. in awe during that time of watching him play. Yeah, and the Giants, I mean, I had written my Giants finally win the World Series story. In the, <laughs> they had a lead in the sixth inning of game six, six, and that's when Dusty took out Russ Ortiz and, and, and gave him the game ball, which fired up the Angels, and they rallied. <laughs> Scott Spezio, who would go on to have a really bad Mariners career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, they came back and won that game and then won game seven, which I knew they would. Once the Giants blew game six, I had, had no doubt that, that the Angels were going to win game seven. So even with Bonds at his peak, but I think Bonds was pretty much the team. They had, uh, I guess they had Jeff Kent back then, but, mm -hmm. but, but Bonds is the reason that they were there. And, uh, um, I thought they were going to win it, but they didn't. 
two very close friends, Jeff Kent and Barry Bonds. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they now have mutual respect, but probably not. <laughs> was Jeff Kent a giant when you were there too? He was not. No, I did not okay. cover him. I was there okay. in the Will Clark, Will Clark, uh, Matt Williams, Robbie Thompson, Rick Russell era. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would have been that would have made your beat pretty. I would say pretty entertaining, at least. Uh, like we don't we. The, the information is not eas- as easily available back in the 90s. No social media, stuff like that, where people that instantly get, you know, team drama. But, I mean, yeah. you would be there and you would you would see the fact they, they could, the two egos could not stand each other. No. no. Not for a second. But I came up to Seattle and I, and immediately there was, there I was with Ken Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez, Randy Johnson, Jay Buhner, so uh, Edgar Martinez. So there was a pretty good collection of talent there too and egos. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I guess it never. I guess it just kept following you, Larry. Wherever you went, <laughs> the egos followed suit. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. Well, this has been awesome. You've certainly had a lucrative career as a sports writer. This has been a fantastic interview. I know we've learned a lot, and we've really enjoyed talking to you. So we appreciate all the time, and we certainly hope to do it again soon. I appreciate it. It's probably the first time that the word lucrative and sports writing has gone together. But... <laughs> 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 Thank you, guys. Awesome interview with Larry Stone. We really appreciated the time. He is so full of stories. We'll have to have him back on again at some point. In the meantime, TJ, let's go on the farm here. Who have you been looking at over the last week? Now, you might have heard this name if you listened to our Chris Langan interview from before the season, but Riley O'Brien... Uh, a guy who came over from the Cincinnati Reds organization has been killing it in Tacoma over his last 18 games since April 12th. Listen to these numbers for Riley O'Brien. One and one with an 0.83 ERA, 21 and two thirds innings. He struck out 34 batters, walked just 11, allowed a 2.03 batting average against. Not on the Mariners' top 30, but as a relief arm, spent some time at driveline this offseason. Chris Langan insisted he give Riley a shout out when he was on this podcast. He did. And Riley's now killing it in Tacoma and a guy who in an emergency, I think would probably see the big leagues at some point the way, the way he's throwing in Tacoma, at least having a sub one ERA over any stretch in the PCL is really impressive. And he's managing it for a guy who hadn't really had a whole bunch of success in the high minors, his former high, his high mark for ERA in the minors in the high minors, Lyle was four five five in twenty twenty one with Louisville. That was his high mark, like his his lowest mark. It, I know that's confusing, and I just tied my words into a knot. His previous low in the high minors was a four five five ERA. Uh, this season, it is down in the ones for Riley O'Brien. That's that's pretty good. So shout out to you, Riley. Good job. Stop me if you've heard this before. The Mariners' bullpen depth is nuts. This is just another guy that adds to that profile. We've talked about. Isaiah Campbell in double A. We've talked about Devin Sweet. Matt Festa's back in triple A now because there's so many arms in the big leagues. O'Brien's just another one. I remember seeing him in spring training and he was a little bit shaky in his first couple outings. And I was like, eh, I wonder how long he sticks around. But boy, was I wrong. That guy has been just going off, like you said, down in Tacoma. So it can't hurt to have. We'll say that much. The Mariners aren't going to run out of bullpen options. We can put it that way. The guy I'm going to highlight is not a bullpen option. In fact, he is another blue chipper in the Mariners system, but he has to be talked about this week. We're going to highlight Jonathan Classe again. We did so a couple weeks ago, and there's a reason. This past weekend, 
He swiped his 40th base of the season on June 9th. That guy stole 55 bases last year. He's already at 40 this year. Oh, by the way, not to mention he has 16 bombs on the year now. This guy has turned himself into a guy that is, you're circling his name and checking his box score every night for the Mariners. He is that good and has a chance to be that good all of a sudden in the majors. He's 21 years old, 40 bases on June 9th. He's probably going to be in the top 100 when when we're rolling around at the at the at the midseason update. You would think, right? He might be on Baseball America's. I I usually I think we both follow um, MLB pipelines a little bit closer, mostly because it's not behind a paywall, uh, easier to track. And he's not on there, but I would I would have to guess with some promotions, he's got to be pretty close to getting on that top 100. I mean this this is absurd stuff for a 21 year old. I mean Julio. Did this, I guess. Well, I mean, he was in the majors as a 21-year-old, so actually we, <laughs> we could throw that out. Never mind. He's In case you couldn't tell, that dude kid turned out okay. Uh, he turned out pretty well. But as a 20-year-old, he was doing those things. Klasse's got an 829 OPS in AA right now for a guy that hasn't been there all that long. He can still get the batting average up, and there's still room for his batted ball profile and just hitting profile to improve down in Arkansas. But the what he's doing right now down there between the base stealing, his defense, his power, it's crazy. Now, we had this conversation off air. I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm not saying it happens. I'm not saying it's surefire. All I'm going to tell you guys listening is don't be totally thrown off and shocked if in the last couple weeks of the season, when Arkansas season ends, they consider calling that guy up, especially if they're in contention. Now, I'm not saying... It's for sure. Again, I'm not saying it it happens. I'm just saying keep an eye out. And and his hit and his bat and his hitting will have to continue to improve in Double A. But again, just remember, I'm saying this now. I'm remembering, uh, okay. and I'm going to respectfully decline. That's fine. I'm just putting the thought out there. That's all. My rationale to Lyle was. I think the things they would need him to do, there are outfielders above him in the organization that would do it better that are already on the 40 man. Cade Marlowe and Sam Haggerty. Boom. Is there an argument? Like case, that, is, it, is there an argument Class A runs better than Haggerty? I mean, maybe, but does Scott Service trust Class A more than he does Haggerty? That's no. the question. Yeah. So we were just coming off focus a little bit earlier in this podcast. He doesn't. I don't know how much you would have to worry about Haggerty's focus on the base paths. We love watching Sam Haggerty run the bases. He was so key down the stretch last year in that exact role, running the bases. That's why we were pissed when he got hurt in the last uh, last series of the season, running the bases. So if they could have Sam Haggerty healthy, I think that would be the most preferred thing. But in an emergency, sure, why not? In a in a in. An, if there are injuries in front of him and they really, really, really need a guy, okay. But I just think if everyone's healthy, I think there are guys above him. That that will be first and easier to call up. Okay. All, all I'm saying is, like I said, don't count on it. Just remember I'm saying it here in mid-June. That's all. Mm-hmm. Good thing we record all these. Otherwise, yes. maybe it would get lost. Okay. Let's get to our MLB wraparound. Now I'm glad I'm almost glad 
we waited a couple weeks to do this because we got a, some really good storylines pile up for this MLB wraparound. First up, we head down to Texas, and as of today, Jacob deGrom has Tommy John. It was announced earlier this week that he was going to miss the rest of the season with Tommy John, and now officially, as of today, he went under the knife and had a successful Tommy John surgery. His initial season with the Rangers over after 30 and a third innings. His 2024 may also be over before it starts. I'm not so sure he pitches next year either. He might not be back till opening day of 2025. I mean, this is brutal for a guy that's been tabbed the best pitcher in baseball for the last few years. He's going to be out for a year and a half. $74 million for 30 and a third innings these next two seasons. That's what the Rangers are going to be paying Jacob deGrom these next two years. That's a really high number. I don't know if I can fault the Rangers for signing this. There were the red flags. The Mets, who knew all of Jacob deGrom's red flags, still offered deGrom a contract to come back, and he decided to go to Texas instead with no income tax. Um, But now deGrom, when he comes back, he will be 36 the next time he steps on a field. I'm pretty confident he's going to still be good. Fun fact of all the pitchers, Lyle, who threw 30 innings this year, uh, we've talked about stuff plus before, just the pure, unadulterated stuff coming out of your hand, not regarding location, not regarding result at all, just how much the ball breaks, how much, you know, just how filthy it is. Jacob deGrom had the highest stuff plus in baseball. Anybody over 30 innings. And that includes all your favorite relievers, too, who have thrown more than 30 innings. All of them. Jacob deGrom was better than all of them. So the arm is... The arm stuff-wise ages fine. The arm health-wise is not. I know you've had some speculation about have all these injuries piled up because of how hard he throws. For a while in his career, he was sitting mid to upper 90s. The last few, he's been in the 100s and the triple-digit range. And then more injuries have started to pile up. I, I, it's, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about it out loud because I know you've thought about it. It is a fair question. His average fastball velocity averaged about 96 miles an hour in his Cy Young years in 2018 and 2019. And then in 2020 as well, it was about that because he pitched the full abbreviated 2020 season. Well, his fastball jumped up nearly two whole miles an hour in 2021, which in that small sample of, of 2021, if you just purely look at on like on a rate basis, that might be some of the best baseball that has ever been pitched in the hist- over 100 year history of this game is DeGrom's 2021 season. I'm I'm really not shy about saying that. I think you would agree with that. But he missed most of that season with injury because he just couldn't stay healthy. And I just can't help but think, is all that stress he's putting on his body to throw this hard and to have just this nasty of stuff coming back to bite him? It's certainly possible. I mean, we can't know for sure, but it's it's certainly not... A ridiculous hypothesis, let's put it like that, or a ridiculous theory. How many other pitchers in baseball history, once they get to 32, now all of a sudden decide, yeah, okay, I'm going to sit 100? It's not a lot. It's not usually a trend you see. I mean, Justin Verlander kind of figured it out again once he got traded to Houston. I mean, I think his velo went up a little bit once he got to Houston, but the list is not long. Sit 100. Like, that's what DeGrom does now. Like that is right. what he does. And I'm curious what how is he gonna dial it when he gets there, when he comes back? Is he still gonna be throwing this hard? 
Is he going to dial it back a little bit? Is he going to sit 95 instead of throwing a 95-mile-an-hour slider? I, I think that might be a little smarter. Here's a question I have for you, Lyle, before we get to our next uh, storyline here on the wraparound. Is he a Hall of Famer? I was going to ask you the same thing. My vote would be yes, because his peak is as close to the mountaintop as anybody that's ever played in this game. He also has not thrown a lot of career innings. So I think if all of the Hall of Fame voters were within 10 to 15 years of our age, it'd be a no-brainer. There are a lot of Hall of Fame voters who still like to live in the Stone Age and really care about innings, 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 innings. Now, there is something to be said about longevity and how long he sustained his peak, but I think the fact his peak was as good as it is was enough to say he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, again, with, with all the Cy Youngs he had in such a short time, and his pure dominance, he's getting my vote. Are you aware of Jaws? No, what's the stat. that? The stat. Uh, so what Jaws does, um, it is a stat to, I guess, sort of measure Hall of Fame, um, Hall of Fame, like, eligibility, or, like, it, it, it's using war to say, like, how how, I, I guess, how viable are you for the Hall of Fame? It takes your seven-year peak plus your to- like your overall total career war, and then it divides it by two. So it gives a re- it rewards guys who had a high seven-year peak and maybe not a whole lot after that, while also rewarding the guys who pitched for a long time and continuously did really well, like, you know, like Walter Johnson, who doubled his career peak after he was done with that. So I have the averages here of 66 uh, of the 66 pitchers in the Hall of Fame. 73 career wins above replacement. Uh, war 7, which is your seven best years of war, is 49.9. Adjusted, which uh, adjusted war 7, which takes all those guys with the massive inning counts early on in baseball and caps them at 250 innings. So you only get the two, first 250 innings worth of war of that. Uh, 40.7 war 7 adjusted. Um, and then jaws of 61.4. Uh, and then there's also adjusted jaws for that second number as well. So Jacob DeGrom stacking up against those guys. He's at 44.6 career baseball reference wins above replacement. Uh, his war seven is 39.8. Don't have to worry about adjusted because he's never thrown more than 250 innings in a season. And he's at 42.2 jaws, which is, by the way, 130th overall in baseball for pitchers. There are Hall of Famers around him. But more often than not, if we're just looking at war, a lot of those guys around him aren't Hall of Famers. Felix is above him. I look at DeGrom more as the Sandy Koufax of this generation, where Koufax was great for a short amount of time, career ended early, still got in the Hall of Fame. I Mm -hmm. look at DeGrom more like that. I'm going to throw one last thing out to you before we move on. So I looked at uh, all the, the 20 pitchers with multiple Cy Youngs. Uh, 11 of them are in the Hall of Fame. We have Roger Clemens, who is a Hall of Fame caliber pitcher who will not get in because he cheated and did steroids. You have active guys, Hall of Famers, Clayton Kershaw, Justin Verlander, and Max Scherzer. You also have Corey Kluber, who's probably not a Hall of Famer, but has multiple Cy Youngs. You have Johan Santana, who had a case. You have Brett Saberhagen, and then you have Tim Linscombe, whose career was cut short. And then you have Jacob DeGrom. So if you look at overall on that list, 
Um, 16 of those guys. 16? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say, sorry, 15 of those guys are in the, are going to be Hall of Famers or should be our Hall of Fame talents. Four of them are not. Um, and then we have Jacob DeGrom. He's getting so, my vote. I think he would get mine too. I, I, having watched him, I would say, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, it'll be an interesting case. And some of it will have to do with what he looks like when he comes back. But yeah, you just hope he gets healthy and has a full recovery and is back in time for either late 2024 or early 2025. Speaking of guys that are looking to get back on the field here in a bit of a different way as we transition to our second MLB story here, Alec Manoa. What a turn of events between last year to this year. He's been sent down to the Florida Complex League to basically work on mechanics, command, get his feel back. Because as he sits with the Blue Jays this year, he has been arguably the worst starter in all of baseball. Yeah, it was kind of strange to see that. It kind of makes sense because they have, like most teams, they have a pitching lab down at their spring training complex. The technology down there is better than it would be at AAA, and he can essentially just work on his mechanics and go throw against minor leaguers to get his feel back, and then eventually probably go on a rehab assignment when he needs it and go pitch in AAA once he works all that out. Very interesting. What's really funny, Lyle, <laughs> is he had that quote before the uh, wild card series against the Mariners, before he uh, gave up four earned runs and five plus, said, quote, pressure uh, is only something you put in tires. Safe to say he hasn't been the same pitcher since. No, he's been driving with flat tires. Yeah. <laughs> Could use a little bit of pressure. I mean, did the Mariners break Alec Manoa? Storyline that we are going to hear bring up. They might have. They really might have. <laughs> I mean, they. I think, I think they live rent-free in his head. I'm going to guess. This dude, all of a sudden this year, I think it mostly boils down to he stopped throwing strikes. He led the league in walks. His fastball command was all over the place, It and his velocity was down. People were curious if it was the pitch clock. You know, he's a bigger guy. He weighs about 285. If that was wearing him down, I would say maybe a little bit, but you see this happen sometimes. Guys just lose it, and that's why you have these wonderful facilities down in your complex league at your spring training facility where guys occasionally might need to rework themselves. And Alec Manoa is one of those guys, but it's just crazy to see someone who had a 2-2-4 ERA last year, nearly 200 innings, uh, turn around and put up a 6-3-6 ERA this year. I mean, he's nearly walked as many guys this year as he did last year. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. And his ERA sits above 6.3. I mean, all of his underlying numbers are terrible. All, all of his peripherals are pretty awful. He wasn't just going to be a guy that benefited from either working through it in the big leagues or making a couple starts down in the minors with a demotion. No, he probably needed to get down to Florida, get some private instruction, and rework some things. That's what he's doing. So, you know, we'll kind of see how that works for him. The Blue Jays are going to need him if they want to hang around here this season. I know they have a good offense, but they're going to need him in that rotation behind Gosman. And we joked about the pressure. Uh, and the tires, there will be no pressure down there. So he doesn't, he, there's nothing he has to worry about. There's no fans screaming at him. There's no nothing. He can just focus. And the Blue Jays think that is the most efficient way to get him back on track. Speaking of guys that are off their teams, uh, we'll save our, probably your favorite storyline for last. Uh, quickly, while Aaron Judge hitting the, um, hitting the injured list 
Uh, he was hurt crashing, making that spectacular catch out in right field at Dodger Stadium last weekend, uh, and he went on the IL with a uh, contusion and ligament strain, and he's going to be out for the uh, foreseeable future. And all of a sudden, that Yankee lineup uh, doesn't quite lo- resemble the Bronx Bombers. It's from that play at Dodger Stadium where he crashed into the fence making that catch. So as a result, he suffered the toe injury. They say the swelling in the toe has gone down a little bit. So that's good news if you're a Yankee fan or just a baseball fan because, as we know, Judge is phenomenal for this game. But the Yankees are going to need him. I mean, we saw it in the Mariners series. We saw it a lot of last year, and I think it still reigns true. When you get past Aaron Judge, there's a lot of questions in that lineup. So you're right. If he's out for a long time... How long can this Yankees team tread water? And it's not just him. Uh, Nestor Cortez is going on the injured list with a left shoulder injury. Bader has been out with a hamstring injury. Frankie Montas uh, and Carlos Rodon haven't thrown a pitch for the Yankees this season. Those are some pretty big contributors right there that aren't in New York. And they, as we saw last year, the Yankees without Aaron Judge were not very good. And now we're about to see them with a considerable stretch without him. See, you know, can they hold up? From a Mariners standpoint, they have a chance to take advantage again because not just with Aaron Judge, this wasn't one of our storylines this week, but Jordan Alvarez just hit the IL too. He's got an oblique injury for the Astros. So with those two guys out, we'll see what the Astros and Yankees do from here. But for the Yankees especially, that lineup just has a hard time sustaining without Judge. It just doesn't look the same. There's nowhere near as much production, and there's not a whole lot of guys behind them that are consistently putting up high, high offensive production. Their outfield now consists of Billy McKinney, Jake Bowers, and Willie Calhoun. That doesn't sound like the Bronx Bronx Bombers to me. Let me tell you what. No. No. Despite Jake Bowers getting some serious revenge against his former team in the Mariners a couple weeks ago when they were here. But for Judge, you got to just hope he gets back on the field soon. Final storyline here. You know I'm excited to talk about this one. The debut of one Ellie De La Cruz for the Cincinnati Reds. Some outlets had him as the top prospect in all of baseball. He comes up and basically in the blink of an eye takes the baseball world by storm. I can't remember the last prospect that that came up like prospect besides well, Shohei Otani doesn't count. He was a sensation uh, already established himself in Japan. What was the last prospect that came up and you're hearing him on national sports talk radio going like, wow, this dude's incredible national sports talk radio. I'm at work at my radio station. We carry Jim Rome, you know, one of the biggest radio shows in America. And what is he talking about on a regular old weekday? In the, the NBA Finals, NFL offseason, all of these other things. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Ellie De La Cruz. And it, it shocked me. It, it really did shock me. But he's earned it. I tried to tell you before it was cool, didn't I? That De La Cruz kid, yeah, he's, he's pretty good. Do you want to hear some of his accomplishments so far? Yeah, let's do it. He has already thrown a ball 96.6 miles an hour from short, the hardest thrown ball in the infield so far this season. Check. He has hit a home run 458 feet with an exit velocity of 114.8 miles an hour. He has an average sprint speed of 30.3 feet per second in the 100th percentile of baseball. 
He reached a peak sprint speed of 31.9 uh, feet per second on an infield single. That is the fastest sprint speed on a ball uh, in play in baseball this season. He recorded a 10.83 home to third on a triple, also the fastest in baseball this season. He already has claimed he is the fastest man in the world. Um, and in summary, Lyle, I wrote that he, in his first week of baseball at the big league level, he hits the ball like Aaron Judge, he runs like Corbin Carroll but faster, and he throws like O'Neill Cruz, and he also just so happens to switch hit. Am I missing anything? Yeah, he's six foot five, two hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Like it, the human body should not be capable of that. He's nuts. I mean, we we say he's kind of like Fernando Tatis. He is. His game. There's a lot of similarities between him and Tatis, and we're seeing it here just in this first week. I mean, he's just taking baseball by storm. The Reds all of a sudden have a fire under them. Now, they're still under 500, but they're playing way better baseball in the handful of games that Ellie De La Cruz has been up. And that NL Central, it's not that strong either. So what they could do here moving forward with all these young pieces that they now have up in the big leagues, you just never know. And I'll tell you, like, this is basically what I saw for half the season last year in the minors when I was in Dayton and I got the front row seat to broadcasting games for Ellie was exactly what you're seeing now. And it's funny because... He wasn't this totally hyped prospect sensation at that point. There was starting to be a little bit of buzz built up around him, but nothing like the way it is right now. And credit to Aram, who we've had on this show, and if you want to go back and listen to that portion, he talked about it with us, talking about Ellie De La Cruz, who he had as his number one prospect, basically before anybody else did. But there's just things on a baseball field you watch him do that you don't see many other people do, and I agreed with that. Speed power, switch hitting, defense. It's crazy. Honestly, the craziest thing about him is his right-handed swing last year wasn't all that great. Like his left-handed swing was way ahead of his right-handed swing when I would watch him last year. And I would kind of sit there and talk shop with some of the other broadcasters around the league. And we kind of threw out some takes about, all right, is is there ever going to be a point where maybe he stops switch hitting, where he just hits from the left side and goes left on left since the lefty swings so much better? Well, fast forward to this year, and that right-handed swing, go watch any highlights of it, looks dominant, like as good as the left-handed swing. He was hitting balls out of the yard from the right side at nearly 120 miles an hour this year in the minors. Dude, yeah. he's a unicorn, and he has a chance to be a 40-40 shortstop. That's real. I can confirm that lefty swing is pretty good. Watching that ball leave his bat and nearly sail out of the stadium, his first first home run. His first swing. <laughs> he's he's incredible dude like again I, I i'm gonna put this out there i don't know if it happens or not is there a way we can get that guy in the all-star game i mean i don't know who the reds all-star is gonna be maybe it's matt mcclain at this point because he's been so good uh, tell me people would not be just licking their chops to see ellie de la cruz in the all-star game they would i think that's gonna be something we'll have to wait until next year to see. However, I know since me and you are going to be hopefully be at the All-Star game, then that would be pretty cool to see with him against the league's best. Yeah, it would. And he was cool. Like when I talked to him a few times last year, he was always really cool, like down to earth. He was humble kid. Um, so I'm certainly rooting for him. Like he's probably my favorite non-Mariner. Like I'm going to be watching his at-bats all year. And now other people are seeing exactly why 
all these others were so hyped about him and and why Arm was so hyped about him and and why he feels like all of a sudden close to being must-see TV if this keeps up. He was hitting the smokestacks in right center field in batting practice <laughs> as a left-handed hitter, which I think is about 500 feet away, just casually hitting them out to the smokestacks. Pull up Great American Ballpark if you, you're not familiar and, and take a look at it. That's a long way to hit a baseball. And he was doing it in batting practice pretty easily. With ease. And you'll see him do it from the right side too. Like, yeah, the fact he plays in such a hitter's park too is only going to be his best friend while he's in Cincinnati. Would he compete in a derby? I I wouldn't be shocked at some point. Now, I don't know if he'd do like half the round from the left side and half the round from the right side. That'd be interesting if he did something like that. But... I would not put it past him at some point in his career, probably on the younger side, to do it. That would be pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Think about it from T-Mobile Park. I mean, which direction would you rather him hit? You want him to have a chance to hit it over the T-Mobile sign and out of the park, or do you want him to park them in the third deck where we saw Shohei Otani put it? Again, why not both? He could do half the round from the right side, <laughs> half true. the round from the left side. Keep him from getting too tired. Exactly. Wear out one side. Yeah, if you're not if you're not watching Ellie De La Cruz yet, you're gonna want to do so because he's he is so fun to watch. I've got his bat back here in my room, by the way. The clubhouse guy in Dayton had an extra because so Ellie broke a bat at some point in the season and he was kind of just gonna get rid of it. My friend who was the clubhouse guy took it and he asked me, he's like, "Do you want this?" And I looked at it and I see the name De La Cruz on the bat. I was like. Yeah, like I'll take it. So I kept it in Dayton for the rest of the season, like wrapped it up in a couple towels because the bat was already broken, took it, put, in the, put it in the car, car was shipped home, got back all in one piece. And now it's sitting here in my room. And I'll tell you what, I ain't selling it. You got to get him to sign it. Yeah, that would be cool. I, I, I think he gave me the bat by the time he'd already been promoted to double A. But maybe one day if I ever run into him again, I could ask him to sign it. That'd be cool. Yeah, that would be really cool. So we'll have to keep tabs on that. Good job. That's good thinking right there. I never would have thought to do that, but that's pretty cool. Good job, yeah. Will. All right, let's get to our Russell Wilson Umpire of the Week. Lyle, I believe you have this one, so uh, take it away. So we're going to go down on the minors, in the minors this week, and we are going to highlight a AAA game between the Indianapolis Indians, AAA affiliate of the Pirates, and the Omaha Storm Chasers, AAA affiliate of the Royals. So Andy Rodriguez seemingly beat out a ground ball. It was a bang-bang play at first inning, or at first base in the fifth inning of a game. He was called out. He was pissed about it. Chucks his helmet on the ground. And then umpire Lou Williams, who was the first base umpire during this game, tossed him right out of the game. Helmet chucked on the ground, he gets tossed. And he's even more furious. furious. Then you see the replay of this. And the caption shot, this dude's entire foot is on top of the pillow at first base before the ball is even in the glove of CJ Alexander, the Omaha first baseman. Like the ball is out of his glove. He's stretching out for it as Rodriguez's foot is fully on the bag. He gets called out, reasonably frustrated, and then he gets kicked out of the game. So congratulations to Lou Williams, first base umpire in that game down in the minor leagues. Honestly, he might have just hit all three requirements in one play. He didn't see over the middle. He didn't let the play develop. He was insufferable for kicking him right out of the game. 
incredible stuff. Just can't. Did he think he must have thought he was showing him up? I like just let the dude be frustrated. But I yeah, guess not. Congratulations, Lou. Will. congratulations. Yeah, yeah, you, you did hit all three. I was gonna say definitely the first two, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's all three pretty easily. Like we would have let this one go if he had let Rodriguez just throw his helmet into the ground and be frustrated, but he didn't. He missed the call and threw him out of the game. So impeccable stuff truly is but do we know if Andy said anything no it looked like he just chucked his helmet from from, at least that's what the highlights showed but (laughs) you know how umpires will be as we highlight every single week don't we yeah you don't even have to say anything no there's not much more to say we do have some more to say however on speak your mind so let's do that speak your mind spoke That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. What are you thinking about this week, TJ? Well, this week, uh, I guess, hits a little closer to this show. It was actually announced today that The Athletic is going to lay off 20 uh, 20 riders, about 4% of their workforce, including friend of the show, Corey Brock, whose work we really enjoy. Uh, So The Athletic laid him off today, along with 19 others. They're shifting, I guess, to a more national-ish coverage. They said mostly the Premier League and the NFL beats are largely unchanged, but that they're going to shift a lot of the local guys into more national roles, the ones, I guess, with remaining beats into more national roles. And it's just disappointing because The Athletic came in about five years ago and said, well, we're going we're gonna to go find those lo- get these local beats in here that are sorely being missed on a, sort of a national level. And you have all these in one place with one subscription. And it seems it, it took five years for them to pretty much abandon that model and go back to pretty we- much whatever national media outlet writes about any sport. Because now, essentially, for Major League Baseball, they are a national publication. That's it. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, we've talked about it so many times. Like, the sports media industry just gets worse and worse. Like, this happened at the LA Times this week, too. They laid a bunch of people off, and they're a huge publication. Now the Athletic's doing it. I mean, it's just, you know, it it can be hard to be optimistic sometimes. I mean, this is part of the reason, like, I'm not back doing minor league baseball again. Part of it is because, you know, it can be a hard lifestyle sometimes. And part of it is because... These play-by-play jobs just keep getting cut and cut. We've seen it at the pro level. We've seen it in NHL hockey. I mean, now we're seeing it with writers. Like, you know, it's easy to be cynical. I think that's fair to say. And it stinks because now in just the Seattle market alone, they have erased the Mariners and they have erased the Huskies as well. But two pretty big and significant beats in the Seattle market that are essentially gone and the Athletics' only presence in a top 15 market now is just the Seahawks. That's it. Yeah, it's it's awful. And, and obviously, we're wishing Corey nothing but the best. We know he's going to find another good job because he's a phenomenal writer, reporter, everything, journalist. And we're rooting for nothing but the best for him. You know, if he, if he ever wants to come on the show and talk ball with us, he is always, always welcome to. You know, I think we'll always consider him a friend of ours. He's been incredibly gracious to give us a bunch of time. He's always been a friendly face when I've been out at the ballpark. But yeah, it sucks. Like, it shouldn't have to be this way for him or for a lot of people. And this got me thinking, and a lot of other people on Twitter that I agreed with were were forming this. It says, I 
feel like the future for those non-newspaper local coverages are going to have to be solely independent, a la what we do. I mean, that's probably what it eventually is going to have to to be too. I know Christian Capel, who again covered the Huskies, since just started his own sub uh, Substack from all the people who enjoyed reading him in the, at the at the Athletic, and I believe that's still pretty much all he does. So it wouldn't be shocking that a lot of a lot of people just take it upon themselves and say, "Hey, I have a following. Why don't I just cut out the middleman and bring the following right to myself, and I write my own stuff and cover all these things on my own?" And the teams realize, "Oh, you have your own publication. Cool, we'll let you cover. That's fine. We know you're a good journalist." So I feel like that might be the road we're heading down. I mean, it's certainly not the whole reason. The The biggest reason you and I do this podcast is because it's a blast and we love talking about the Mariners and we love being in the Mariners community. But yeah, as, as two people who are in radio play-by-play and low-level baseball and somebody who's, you know, working a job in, in talk radio and in a s- smaller market, not that you're not enjoying it, I know you are, but you know, we can just kind of see where the future of sports media is going. And it's a lot of this stuff. It's a lot of content creation, YouTube podcasting, which is another reason we're kind of, we're kind of doing this because, because, you know, we're, we're trying to stay with the times and all. Yeah. Yeah. You put it pretty, pretty well that way. And again, the, the goal eventually with this is that we can self-sustain. I mean, yeah. maybe not in this exact form, but in some form or another, sure. Why not? Right. Uh, like that, that is the goal of this. And you know, it just kind of, it just stinks to see people lose their job. It just stinks because it like does. you said, it, it doesn't like there, it means there are less jobs out there, less job right. for everybody. And it sucks for all the people who lost a paycheck and it's going to stink for all those in the future who will lose theirs as well. And it's yeah. not like, it's not like there's all these jobs to, to go into in the journal, uh, journalism industry. Say we're talking about tech. There are tech layoffs all the time, but there are a lot of tech companies hiring in a lot of roles. And there are a lot of jobs in tech, but in, in sports, not really. Mm-hmm. It is one thing I have learned in the past, I would say six months, especially it is a small, small industry. It is not very big. And there's a reason everyone knows each other because they can, because there's not that many people to know. Right. Oh, it's true. It's true. There's not a lot of jobs out there and it's terrible that all these talented people are losing them. But it's just less and less jobs as time go times go on. So you can only hope eventually more start to open back up again. But you know, only so much of it's in our control. So obviously, we wish nothing but the best for Corey for all the people that got laid off. That they're going to find another good step in their careers. We know they will. We certainly know Corey well because all these people are so talented. But yeah, it just sucks to see. Okay, on a little bit of a lighter note for my speak your mind here. Speaking of this podcast. There is somebody we would like to firmly stamp and put in the sand and say, we'll never be on this show. And that is one, the father of a kid titled the nickname Baby Gronk. So if you're not following this story, there's this kid. He goes by the nickname of Baby Gronk. He's 10, 11 years old. Now, objectively, he is a good football player. Like, he's really good. Apparently, he's putting up insane numbers in his Pop Warner games. But his dad has been parading him around, taking these stupid recruiting tours to all these SEC schools and trying to get him as much media attention as humanly possible. And this past weekend, there was all these sports media personalities 
that basically exposed his dad for DMing everybody in their mother saying, hey, can you repost my son's highlights? And then can my son come on your podcast and we can talk or can I come on your podcast and talk about my kid and how great he is? Where it's getting to the point where it's just out of control. You're hearing about how his dad has basically premeditated him being a superstar since before he was born. You hear stories that he's eating salmon and brine and brown rice on some type of regimen. He's working out six days a week. Again, he's like 10, 11 years old. And this dad is is treating him like he's like going to be the first pick in the NFL draft in two months. And I, I don't know. I think this story is ridiculous. And I think the fact that all these people are exposing him, trying to just crave and crave for media attention is hilarious. I love the tweet that it was every... Uh, every social media, every team, every account that I've worked for in social media has been DM'd by Baby Gronk. Every single one in sports, <laughs> which I think is funny. And we saw, like you said, we saw all these screenshots come out where it wasn't just once. He is very, very persistent. I mean, three, four, five times. Hey, this would be a great time for an interview on the, on your podcast. Baby Gronk just, you know, did this and did that. I was thinking. Is this better or worse than that show that's like, uh, like teen, like kid princesses, like the the kid beauty pageants? I don't even know what that is. Well, there are shows where like all these all these moms have their you know five year olds dress up in beauty pageants and are trying to go win win a ton of money, and they're all these just really rich spoiled kids that like that dress up as a princess and go show themselves off, and it's essentially the same thing with their parents just forcing all these things upon him and, and saying, yeah, you are going to do this because obviously they're five. And this seems like the, uh, like a, a male version of this. I'd say it's pretty similar in the sense that neither should really be happening. And again, the fact this kid is being forced to eat salmon and brown rice all the time at 10 years old, he's not allowed to eat ice cream apparently. Like this is ridiculous. Like I'll tell you what, this is the analogy I used. The path him and his dad are going on feels very similar to Andre Agassi, where if you don't know that story, Andre Agassi, who was a world-renowned tennis player, is one of the best tennis players to ever live. He's a bad relationship with his dad because his dad pushed him way too hard as a kid when Agassi probably didn't want to pursue tennis to the level that his dad wanted him to. And it created a lot of friction. I don't see how this relationship is going anywhere but there because eventually this kid's going to grow up to just resent his dad. It feels like what his dad's doing is essentially trying to live out a dream that he couldn't make happen for himself out of his kid. Again, the fact he said, oh, this has been basically in the works since before he was born. Like, that's insanity. That's insane. Try to make money off your kid, essentially. Like, at least with LeVar Ball, when that whole show was going on, at least LeVar had two sons who were slam dunk top five picks. He made his own media circus. Like, he generated his own media and now that they're in the league, he's backed off. Like, you don't really hear from him much anymore. It was more just when they were in high school and college. Oh, by the way, LeVar was pretty funny. I'll just throw that out there. But He did make that, some shitty shoes, though. He did. But listening to his interviews was funny. <laughs> this, however, is ridiculous. So that's what I've been thinking about this week. I think this story is just a joke. What if Baby Gronk turns out to only be five foot nine? Exactly. Then then all this goes to waste and, and the dad looks even dumber for doing what he's doing. I heard it put perfectly. There is a specific type of athlete that plays in the NFL. 
You're not that, Lyle. I am not that. 99.9999% of humanity does not fit that athletic profile to be in the NFL. Unless baby Gronk actually hit the genetic lottery, I like all of this will be for naught. All of it. And it's just going to look like a gigantic circus for a dad who tried to essentially groom his son to be something that he's not. The last bow tie I'll put on this, and then we'll wrap this up, is so Will Compton and Taylor Luan, who are Will Compton's a former NFL linebacker. Taylor Luan is still technically in the league. He's an offensive lineman. They do a podcast together. This dad DM'd Will Compton saying, can my son be on your show or can I be on your show to talk about my son? And Will Compton told him no. And then he got so sick of the story that he kind of talked about it on a video he put on Twitter this weekend saying that basically what we're saying now, this is ridiculous. The dad turns around and then he DMs Taylor Luan and said, hey, can we do a one-on-one interview talking about my son? We don't need Will. We can just do it, the two of us. And Taylor Luan, of course, screenshots it and puts it on Twitter. And he's like, dude, are you serious? And him and Will Compton are laughing about it because like, this is the level that this guy's going to. So anyway, that's your crazy story of the week. If you have not heard about this and yeah, it's, it's ridiculous to put it lightly. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Okay. I think after that, that'll just about wrap up this edition of the Marine Layer podcast. You guys know the drill. You want to listen to the full podcast, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. Full video forms on YouTube. Go give us a like, comment, download, subscribe, all that good stuff. And follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. For TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.